Good morning, podcast people. This is Ann Althaus, your podcaster, your blogger. Getting an early start on the podcaster because I got to go out and do some stuff. And it seems like a good time. The podcast, uh, the blog began at 4 a.m. this morning when I commented on a an article at BuzzFeed called a college student behind a massively popular paint-mixing TikTok page was fired from Sherwin-Williams. Tony Pilosano even used his wildly successful and viral TikToks as part of a digital marketing pitch to the company to appeal to younger members of Gen Z. And one fan commented, they fired you? It's 2020 and companies still don't understand the benefit of digital and social marketing. Now, this is me. What this guy was doing was this guy, Tony Pilosano, he had a job at a paint store, Sherwin-Williams Paint, and he made TikTok videos using the equipment in the store, basically showing how colors were blended. So, you know, you'd start with white and then some dark looking blue and some green or yellow, and you'd get a beautiful turquoise and I guess people found that quite fascinating. You know, I don't know about you, but I like to look at TikTok. It's absolutely mesmerizing. And I can see, I, I had not noticed his uh, videos, but I can see how just seeing a close up of the paint getting mixed and turning into a color would be fascinating. Similar to stuff that you see on TV, like didn't Mr. Mr. Rogers show things like that, how something is manufactured. There's something uh, very pleasant about seeing how a machine works, seeing how colors are blended. Maybe you don't know that you get that in order to make blue, dark blue into turquoise, you add a lot of white and some yellow, but uh, that's news to some people. And I think that that would be very fun for Gen Gen Z and get people interested in colors and maybe they'd want to paint, buy paint and they'd be favorably disposed to Sherwin-Williams paint in particular and they'd be painting their rooms. I remember when I was a teenager or around 20 years old, the idea of being able to buy my own paint, pick whatever strange color I thought was fun, would be cool to be looking at for the two days that it would take to paint a room, uh, and just be painting rooms. It used to be a hippie thing to paint rooms in uh, striking colors, bright colors, dark colors, um, when you get a little older, you probably lean more toward white or gray or something like that, something calming, but, uh, for the young, exciting paint and just throwing on a new paint job seems like an exciting thing to do. So get people hooked on paint. But, uh, from the employer's standpoint, Pilosano was in violation of several gross misconduct policies because he'd used company tint machines for his personal use. But he had over a million followers of his TikTok videos that fascinated people with paint mixing, and he'd made a pitch to them. He'd made a pitch to Sherman Williams about doing viral marketing. So he he got very popular. He was using the machines in his spare time. He says he paid for the paint himself. We don't know if that's, I don't know if that's true or if he always did that, but he had some trouble with the store policies, but he discovered a way to do some fantastic advertising, viral advertising for Sherwin-Williams, and then they blew it by, uh, uh, it's kind of understandable, objecting to his doing things on the job that were not the job. I mean, you don't hire people to use the premises for their own work. So uh, Sherwin-Williams 
passed up the opportunity and they hurt their own brand because anybody that is thinking, I want to paint my room turquoise because I saw Tony Palosano's TikTok and I'm excited about colorful paint, uh, they'll probably specifically choose a brand of paint other than Sherwin-Williams. You know, whatever it is they sell at a Home Depot, Bear, or something like that. There's so many paint brands. Why would you pick Sherwin-Williams? So they hurt their brand. You might uh, actively avoid Sherwin-Williams because they fired Tony Pilosano. If you got excited about paint colors through Pilosano, you might buy paint and specifically avoid Sherwin-Williams. And yet, companies can't allow employees to use the machines for personal creative projects, can they? You can't have TikTok shoots happening randomly throughout the workplace. I mean, would that just be a complete excuse? People do whatever they want with the machines and take photographs in the workplace. They could be having accidents. They could be costing money, using up the product, doing something dangerous, and also just annoying other people in the workplace. I mean, if you work somewhere, do you want your coworker filming TikTok near you? Uh, it actually is pretty annoying, but they could have, since he made a pitch directly to them, they could have figured out a way to incorporate him in their advertising. And they could have spent a lot of money on an advertising expert just to figure out how to do the thing that he did. And they didn't have to spend any money. So I think they should have recognized his uh, genius for what he was doing and how valuable it was to them hired him to do that, started paying him for that, uh, but continued to have rules against it, but simply forgiven him for what he'd already done wrong. Anyway, uh, they couldn't think straight, and I think uh, people tend to see the negative rather than the positive, so they worry about the liability. They worry about, well, what if everybody behaved like that, and we can't give special treatment to one person over another, so all that kind of cautiousness rather than, wow, we've got something big here. We need to get hold of this and uh, keep this guy. He's great. You know, that's just the lack of uh, seeing the negative as bigger than the positive, the potential positive versus the real here now negative. I understand that, um, that preference. Don't let anything go wrong first. First, do no harm. Don't let things go wrong. But then there are all these big things that might go right if you took some chances, but you don't, you don't wanna do that because you're first focused on all the things that could go wrong. Uh, I, let's see, in the second post we have here is from, what time did this go up? 4.16, well this is 4.44, and this is based on a transcript of Joe Biden speaking yesterday. He was asked about Trump's refusal to concede the election. And I was inclined to go over and read this because the big thing yesterday was the, uh, the Rudy Giuliani. I talked about this in yesterday's podcast and people let me have it in the comments. Uh, some of you apparently think uh, Rudy Giuliani did a good job, but he seemed like a madman on that video. And there's lots of stuff making fun of him, including making fun of him for the um, sweat that was rolling down his face that seemed to be colored by whatever product he's using in his hair. I guess when you don't dye your hair, you can use a kind of brush-in material that's a little bit like mascara in your hair. And so like when a woman with mascara cries, she's got the mascara running down under her eyes. He had running down by his ear this like dark, 
droplet of sweat rolling down his face. And, and then it seems like he's sweating because he is desperate and he sounded desperate. So that look of desperation, the sweat rolling down the face, it reminds me of that scene in, uh, in um, oh, what's the name of that movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger, Total Recall which is called I Could Dream It For You Wholesale. We Can Dream It For You Wholesale, which is about advertising. Could fit that in with the paint, uh, the drops of paint and the drops of colored uh, Giuliani sweat. Uh, everything is about swirling blobs and droplets of color today. I'll have to use that for the name of this podcast. But um, And another meme that I'm seeing out there about Rudy Giuliani is... Um, when he was waiting for his turn to speak, I couldn't believe this. He takes out a handkerchief, blows his, of course, he's not wearing a mask, takes out a handkerchief, blows his nose, and then folds the handkerchief. I'm not kidding. I mean, unless this is some kind of fake, but I saw the video. Folds the handkerchief with the mucus side out, then wipes his hands with it. In other words, wipes snot all over his hands, and then wipes his face with the same snot side out handkerchief. I mean, the idea that Giuliani hasn't lost his mind. We need better, we need better evidence of the fraud he's talking about. And we need better evidence that he hasn't lost his mind because that, that um, handling of the handkerchief on camera was one of the most ludicrous uh, things I've ever seen a public figure do. So I don't know. I think uh, maybe he hasn't had enough sleep. Is he using a drug? What's going on with Giuliani? I think uh, maybe we need an investigation into that. Just kidding. I don't want special investigations into these people, but I think we certainly can judge them by their behavior. Anyway, I went to the transcript of Joe Biden because yesterday was the Giuliani day. So I wanted to see what he was talking about. And he'd been asked... Uh, about Trump's refusal to concede the election. And he said, I think they're witnessing incredible irresponsibility. Incredibly damaging messages being sent to the rest of the world about how democracy functions. And I think it is, well, I don't know his motive, but I just think it's totally irresponsible. No, I'm not concerned the vast majority of the American people might question the legitimacy of my administration. All the polling data has indicated, although the Republicans who worry about it, it's higher, but over 78% of, American, of the American people believe it's without question, it's legitimate. And I think most of the Republicans I've spoken to, including some of the governors, think this is debilitating. It sends a horrible message about who we are as a country. And then he also talked about the pandemic. Um, the press conference was about handling the pandemic. And I was encouraged to see him embrace the decentralized federalism approach because he had sounded like he was gonna do top-down stuff. Like when I get power, I'm gonna have one rule for all. But he said, no national shutdown, no national shutdown, because every reason, every region, every area, every community can be different. And so there's no circumstance which I can see would require a total national shutdown. I think that would be counterproductive, close quote. And I said, I like the calmness, the modesty. He's displaying good instincts right now. I'll just give this my I'm for boring tag to gesture at what I like about the emerging 
Biden administration. Yeah, it's the rest period. We've had too much crazy. Um, he's not going to be perfect. He has his various uh, limitations and uh, even perhaps disabilities. But I think his instinct is toward moderation and to keeping things at least looking normal. I know, making things look normal could be a cover for the very worst uh, tyranny. Some people are saying things like that in the comments, but I actually think um, uh, you'll have to show me that, this idea that, oh, it's quiet, too quiet. The fact that it looks like nothing has happened, that's exactly how it looks when lots of things are happening. Uh, you'll have to show me some evidence. I'm not gonna you know, do the uh, conspiracy thinking before it's needed. So, uh, in the comments, Balfagor points to this new poll, which Biden could not have seen when he spoke of all the polling data yesterday. Uh, Rasmussen reports tweets, huge. How likely is it that Democrats stole votes or destroyed pro-Trump ballots in several states to ensure that Biden would win? And in this poll, uh, among the Democrats, 30 to 20 percent say it's very likely. Unaffiliated 39 to 29 percent say very likely. Republicans 71 to 61 percent say very likely. And all voters 47 to 37 percent say very likely. So I don't know why those numbers show the larger before the smaller, but uh, you get it. Around 30 percent of Democrats say very likely. 39 percent unaffiliated, 75% Republicans, and among all voters, 47% um, or 36% to 47% are in the very likely category. Um, and I, I think it's important to notice the way the question is asked. Rasmussen didn't ask whether people believe there were enough votes affected to change the outcome in the election but whether the motive was to try to affect the election. Of course, if people do any fraud, everyone that does fraud is hoping to affect the election. Why would you do fraud other than to affect the election? Maybe there's some unusual reason, but basically, if there's any fraud, it's fraud done by people who have a motive to affect the election. So if you ask people, do they believe there was any fraud with a motive to affect the election, you're basically asking them whether there was any fraud, even scattered, small-scale things that have no chance of affecting the election. They were still done with the motive to affect the election. Uh, so I, I think be careful when you, you have to look at what the question, what question was asked, because it looks like something, as Rasmussen puts it, looks like something huge. That's funny that they use Trump's uh, keyword, huge, huge. Uh, but really, if you look closely at the question, it's not huge. It's not about whether enough votes were affected, but whether the motive was to affect enough votes. Biden was talking about belief that he really did win enough votes. So that poll doesn't go against what Biden said. Biden was just talking about how overwhelming the belief is that he really did win enough votes not how overwhelming the belief is that nobody anywhere committed fraud. Um, to believe that he really did win enough votes is not the same as believing that there were no stolen votes. In that light, these polls, these poll results are a little inconsequential.
they actually are inconsequential. It's easy to say, I'm sure there was some fraud in some places, and also to believe that overall the result we're seeing is legitimate. It's easy to believe both of those things. So if you ask only one of those things, uh, you'll get one answer, and it looks like you get a conflicting answer if you ask the other thing, but really, both of those things are very easy to believe. I would expect the majority to believe both, that the result that was achieved so far as we look at the election, that Biden was really elected, that that's genuine, and that it's also true that there was some fraud in some places. Why wouldn't most people believe both of those things? So I don't see the poll as inconsistent with what Biden was saying. It's easy to say, I'm sure there was some fraud in some places, but also to believe that overall the result we're seeing is legitimate. It's not perfect, but it's good enough. The point at which you say that varies depending on whether you're happy with the outcome you're seeing now. So it's never going to be perfect, but if we think we can do elections, we have to be able to think that they're good enough, that we're getting accurate outcomes, even as we know there are some flaws and some misbehavior, that we've got it good enough that we can rely on the outcome. If it's always going to be held in doubt, um, maybe you can't do democracy at all and some other system would be required because of fake democracy, what good is that? And maybe, maybe some political scientists could explain why that actually is good, but I think we've got something better than that. Also in the comments, DB writes, interesting that the Federalist approach did, did not trigger Trumpian approach in your remarks. Now that's a little uh, obscurely written, but what she's saying is, why when I praised Biden for having a federalism approach, why didn't I say, and Trump had a federalism approach too, or Biden is doing the, Biden is showing it, now that he's elected, Biden is showing us that Trump's approach really was the best approach. And I said, I didn't write it out, but I thought it, it seemed obvious. I'm not trying to suppress it. Throughout the year, I've defended Trump's federalism approach when he was criticized for not taking over with a top-down national approach. There's this from April 11th. I've seen some pressure on Trump to take more one-size-fits-all top-down actions, and he has resisted because it's a big country and conditions are different in different places. Similarly, when Trump moves toward reopening, he is, I presume, going to continue with this approach, supporting opening the places where the conditions are most amenable to returning to work. We'll ease into it, watching as we go and proceeding with caution. The Times says people will be wary of resuming normal activities before the country has far more extensive testing, meaning testing to see who has the virus or the antibodies. But another kind of testing is experimenting with opening the country back up in a gradual way, where conditions are best, observing how well it works, and moving forward, learning from experience. This is the experimentation characteristic of American federalism, close quote. And then I have this from April 14th, when the press painted Trump as a demented Captain Quig. Quote, I'm quoting myself. Trump wants the governors to take responsibility and to do what works within each one's particular state. They're acting as though they are rebelling and he'll stand his ground as the captain of the ship, insisting on his authority so they can look like mutineers for the pleasure of the theater audience, the public, 
and the governors get the political cover they need to do what Trump probably would like to tell them straightforwardly to step up and do. So in short, I have complimented Trump on the federalism approach to dealing with the pandemic, which I think is the right one. And I think it's so right that Biden also sees that it's right. But when the campaign was still on, Biden acted, had to act like everything Trump was doing was wrong. I didn't like that. I still don't like it. But I'm glad to see Biden resetting himself to the position that actually is the rational, sensible, pragmatic approach. And every time Biden does something that's more moderate and sensible and reality-based, I'm going to be complimenting him on it. I, I mean, I guess there are some examples in that category that wouldn't be good, but basically I like to see that. I like to see him not going for radical solutions. And I think the one-size-fits-all top-down approach for America is bad, unlikely to work. You don't get the experimentation. You don't get the fine-tuning to the particular conditions. And, you know, the city and the country are different. You have to have the, it's a big country. There's just too many people. And you have to, you have to use the federalism approach, I think. So I'm glad to see him doing that. And I'm not going to criticize him just because um, he's doing what Trump He's doing what Trump said was good. But I do recognize that. I'm in no way trying to hide that. And anybody that thinks I said Trump was bad all the time and Biden was good all the time should hear from the people who like to tell me the opposite, that I'm always saying uh, Trump is good and I'll never admit that Biden is good. I don't do either. I don't do either. But you probably notice when I'm being antagonistic to the person you don't like. But that's the cruelty of the cruel neutrality. Okay, the next post that went up, went up at 5.43 a.m., and I was commenting on an article in The New Yorker by Jenny, Jeannie Suk Gerson in the, called uh, Kamala Harris and the Noble Path of the Prosecutor. And I just took out this quote. Prosecutors may still be stigmatized as administrators of racial inequality, but their reputation will perhaps be upstaged by the opportunity for public servants to make a name for themselves as fundamentally different kinds of prosecutors, championing measures that are more rehabilitative than punitive. Some have perceived Kamala Harris's conversion to progressive prosecutor as opportunistic. But it is not entirely out of keeping with her record or with evolving public opinion, to which she and other politicians are responsive. Her leadership as vice president in enacting reform could confirm that prosecution is renewing itself as a noble path to the highest offices with the ambition to govern by having criminal justice govern less. At the same time, in the wake of Democratic losses in congressional and state elections, some legislators have raised questions about the possibility, uh, about the possibly, in the wake of Democratic losses in congressional and state elections, some legislators have raised questions about the possibly negative effects of progressive ideas, particularly calls to defund the police. As Democrats evaluate the election results, concerns about achieving majorities might temper some enthusiasm for reform, close quote. 
So you can see she's kind of playing both sides there. She's talking about the reputation of prosecutors as administrators of racial in, in, inequality, but she also thinks there's some earlier period in which uh, prosecutors were held in greater respect, and she's saying that maybe we can get back to that kind of noble path of the prosecutor, that's her term, uh, because uh, opportunistic politicians like Kamala Harris will be responsive or might be responsive to the public pressure to do more uh, racial justice and to have reforms. And yet she's also admitting that the democratic losses in congressional and state elections have been attributed by some Democrats, the ones who want the middle ground to be restored, uh, they're blaming the progressive ideas, particularly the attack on the police and the call to defund the police. So this racial justice theme among Democrats, which could be used to bring prosecutors back into the realm that she is characterizing as noble. Uh, and then the question is, what will Kamala Harris do with that? Kamala Harris has been a prosecutor. So is that a good launching pad for her future ambitions? Or is it going to hurt her? Well, there's a suggestion that it won't hurt her if she bends the prosecution approach to these racial justice ideas. But that doesn't quite look like the way the Democratic Party is going. They're trying to get certainly elite within the Democratic Party. I guess the same people who pushed Joe Biden over the finish line to denomination are trying to um, disqualify the progressive side and to say that that was a failure. You can't do that. Well, if you can't do that, how is Kamala Harris going to rise above her prosecutor background? She has to reframe that as something progressive when it's not. And the Democratic Party seems to be trying to tell itself not to be progressive and that defund the police was a disaster. Well, that's the infighting in the Democratic Party now. Anyway, I was surprised to read this statement of Gerson's, which comes at the beginning of the article. Quote, when I was in law school 20 years ago, Prosecution was a form of public service that was thought to carry little controversial baggage. And I said, when I went to law school 20 years before that, aka 40 years ago, I heard the clear message stated absolutely that if you wanted to go into public interest law, you should never at any phase in your career take any job in prosecution. It would make you toxic to the people of the left. So there was real solidarity among the people of the left as I heard it, and you'll have to take my word for it, it was 40 years ago and it's what I heard, how I heard it. Maybe I was distorted in my perception, but the idea that I got was don't get any stink of prosecutor on you or it'll ruin your, your progressive career. That it was the progressive thing to do to just be solid on this idea of hating the prosecution side, being opposed to the prosecution. But apparently in uh, the year 2001 or two, when Gerson was in law school, she went to Harvard, I went to NYU, there was an idea that it was, there was no problem with 
prosecution. It was another form of public service with little controversial baggage. I really find that hard to believe. I just don't know if that's true. Maybe I was in more left-wing places than she was. I was in law school at NYU. I was a professor at uh, the University of Wisconsin Law School. Um, so I don't know, but what I heard was, you don't want to be a prosecutor. Now, another thing was that a lot of, well, I don't want to, I could go down a road that would be so politically incorrect that I'm actually going to close the door there for now. But um, there's something more I could say that I'm choosing not to say. But, and I said, but who can check the accuracy of messages people remember detecting in the distant past? In the present, I understand the motivation to put Kamala Harris in a flattering light. And yet, what puts her in the best light? The progressive idea or law and order, right? She could be the law and order prosecutor. She doesn't have to be the social justice prosecutor, racial justice, which is better for her. So you could say, let's put her in a good light to boost her. What, which way would, and, and which way should she go? How should she shape her image? Which way would it be better to skew if she wants to win the, the presidential election in 2024? I mean, she was a prosecutor. She has that. You have whatever's in your past, but then you shape that and you present that and you do things going forward that will be a filter for looking at the past. Oh, that's the kind of prosecutor she was. Well, whatever she was, she was, but how will we look at what she was in the future? That will include what she did later and she still has control over that. But should she be, should she shape the prosecutorial experience as meaning she knows law and order, or should it be she knows about racial justice, she's learned about that, and she can see where the reforms need to be made. Now, I would expect her people to say, she can do both, you can do both at the same time. And so the trick is to prosecute the right things, to be a tough prosecutor, and to be choosing to prosecute the right things, right? And also, you can prosecute without being punitive, you can find the people who are doing the things that need to be changed and you can do effective things to make them change. I think you could coordinate it all if you wanted to. You don't really have to pick, but maybe you do have to skew and maybe you can keep it uh, flexible so you can skew one way or the other depending on who your opponents turn out to be and where the country ends up going. Are there going to be more riots? What's going to happen? Um, maybe you want to be in a position to adjust. And why shouldn't she? I, I was for pragmatism and realism. Why not? Okay, I have one last post, and this went up at 6.58. I guess I knocked off at uh, 7 this morning. Uh, and this one is on a different subject. It's not political. It's kind of a little oriented to the time of coronavirus. It's something David Brooks wrote in the New York Times. I don't always like David Brooks's column. Columns, I don't always read them, but I was intrigued enough to click on the headline, Nine Non-Obvious Ways to Have a Deeper Conversation, The Art of Making Connection, Even in a Time of Dislocation. Okay, well, I'm interested in the subject of conversation, and I don't know if all of his tips on how to have a deeper conversation are that good. I, I scanned them. I thought, I, I, I didn't really think, uh, well, how about some obvious or non-obvious ways to have a deeper New York Times column? 
uh, deeper things are, I think I have a, a post just about the word deeply, but you know, deepness, deep, this is deep. It's kind of a, a bullshit word. Uh, how do you have a deeper conversation? How do you talk to somebody to get them not to be uh, small talk, not to be um, just tedious? You know, you're having all of these conversations. How can we make conversation better? That's an important topic, how to have a good conversation. You probably find, I have found, depends on the person. Some people you can have a great conversation with, and some people you just can't make it happen. You know, you just have to, what? Why does that happen? I know when I'm with somebody that I can have a good conversation with, but I'm, but most people that wouldn't be the case. Or, and you know, I take responsibility. Maybe it's me. I do conversation on the blog. I set up, I think, conversations pretty well on the blog. But if you met me in person, you might not want to have a conversation with me, and I might not want to have a conversation with you. And if we're distanced by coronavirus, we're kind of dependent on, over-dependent on conversation. A lot of times you're just enjoying being around people because of who they are, what they are, how they look, how they feel to you. It's not necessarily the actual things they're saying, and there may not be any way to get them to say anything that would make it rewarding for you to be speaking to them. So I don't know all about the nine non-obvious ways, but there was one paragraph that I liked, and that's what I'm going to read to you, and then that'll be the last thing in the podcast. Quote, C.S. Lewis once wrote, oh darn it, just when I was ending the podcast and trying to end on a lofty high note, I stumble over a word. You know, if you're not doing editing, it actually is hard to read quotes without stumbling. Uh, maybe as often as once a sentence, it's just actually hard to say all the words exactly right. But I'm trying, I really am trying. Back to the quote. Quote, C.S. Lewis once wrote that if you'd never met a human and suddenly encountered one, you'd be inclined to worship this creature. Every human being is a miracle and you're superior in some way. The people who have great conversations walk into the room expecting to be delighted by you and make you feel the beam of their affection and respect. Lady Randolph Churchill once said that when sitting next to the statesman, William Gladstone, she thought him the cleverest person in England. But when she sat next to Benjamin Disraeli, she thought she was the cleverest person in England, close quote. So there's the idea that Benjamin Disraeli was the great conversationalist because he had awe for his fe fellow creatures. He viewed the every human being as a miracle and everyone had something in them that could be wonderful to you. And if you have that feeling about other people, you start to talk to them. If you came to the conversation with that idea that they're a miracle, that uh, if you'd never encountered one of these before, you'd be inclined to worship this creature, well, then that would be a good conversation. I don't know. I, there's a little bit of, I don't know about the worship part, e even though maybe every human being is a miracle, but some people are awfully boring, but maybe the boring people, that, that's your problem. You think you're better than that other person, but really, you shouldn't think like that. You, you could be the very best person, but you should still walk into the room with the idea that there are miracles there for you to uncover. See what they say.
Um, yeah, yeah. I don't know about worshiping. I don't know if you've had a good conversation, if you would have a good conversation with a being that you just met who inspired worshipfulness in you. I mean, if you were to encounter God, would you have a nice chat? <laughs> Wouldn't you be more likely to be awestruck? Oh, to be awestruck is not to be able to speak. You might not be able to say anything. Um, but maybe God would be like Benjamin Disraeli and would view you as a miracle, one of my many miraculous works. I'm encountering him. And in Genesis, isn't there the very beginning of Genesis, don't we have God walking or hanging out with Adam and having conversations with him? Isn't that, isn't that the way the Bible starts? When God, with a God that's able to walk with you and talk with you, isn't there something to that? And isn't that part of the idea of Jesus, that this creature worthy of worship is actually someone that you would talk to, you'd have a great conversation with, wouldn't you?